Under the Constitution, the delegated power to regulate commerce among the several states does not include a power to mandate commerce or prohibit it. The Constitution grants to Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. When that phrase was written in 1787, it meant that the new federal government would be authorized to keep commerce moving regularly between the states. The states, which had just won their independence from the King of England, fell under the influence of wealthy merchants and bankers, the same merchants and bankers who had loaned the states the money with which to support the armies that fought against the King. The merchants and bankers were also in control of the state legislatures, so they were both creditors and debtors. They ran the governments that owed the money to them. So they did what you might expect them to do. They made competition difficult, and they imposed tariffs on out-of-state goods. These tariffs, of course, made it impossible to sell a product across state lines because of the cost to the consumer. And like tariffs always do, they raised prices on everything. Hence, the Commerce Clause was written so that Congress would keep commerce regular, moving freely, and without interference by the government, state or federal. Unfortunately, as we all know, we moved from commerce controlled by the states to commerce controlled by the feds. From the very beginning, Congress exceeded its charge of keeping commerce regular and began to control prices, conditions of travel, wages of those who made the items that moved in interstate commerce. All because the people we send to the federal government, each of whom has sworn a solemn oath to uphold the Constitution, simply don't give a damn about it. So which do you want? A Congress that does whatever it thinks it, will, it can do to keep itself in power? A Congress that bribes the people with their own tax dollars? or one that follows the Constitution its members have sworn to uphold? The answer is obvious. We can see how we came to be a country. We can see how we got to Philadelphia. We can see what happened in Philadelphia. The stated purpose of going to Philadelphia was to facilitate commercial activity between private individuals over interstate lines. So how are they going to do that? They're going to do that by permitting the Congress to regulate interstate commerce. The word regulate meant to keep regular. And this is, of course, the principal power that is given to Congress in the Constitution. Of the 16, did you know there are only 16? 16 discrete powers given to the government in the Constitution. Because the same Congress whose charge it was under the Constitution to keep commerce between the states regular decided that it would do more than just keep them regular, that it would influence that commerce and control that commerce. So we start with a very simple case. The state of New York gives a monopoly to a guy to transport barrels from Elizabeth, New Jersey, up the Hudson and into Manhattan. Supreme Court in a very famous case says the state of New York can't grant the monopoly. Why? Because only Congress can regulate interstate commerce. And so the court invalidates 
the New York grant of the monopoly. But in the act of invalidating the monopoly, the court says, Congress's power over commerce is plenary, a fancy phrase meaning without limit. Congress can do anything it wants, anything which in its opinion will enhance interstate commerce. Well, the outcome of the case was a good one because it resulted in a lot of competition for uh, goods and services and transportation of goods and services between New Jersey and New York across the Hudson. But the language in the case was extremely troublesome. We get to the, perhaps the most extreme of these Commerce Clause cases. It's 1942, FDR is king, FDR is the president, <laughs> and <he's laughs> his bureaucrats are regulating everything under the sun. So they are regulating the amount of wheat you can grow per acre under something called the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, AAA, and what you can do with the wheat. And they claim the power to do this under the Commerce Clause. Roscoe Filburn is a farmer in Ohio. He grows 11 and a half acres of wheat. Mrs. Filburn grinds all of the wheat uh, into flour and bakes goods, all of which is consumed on the farm. That which she doesn't grind is consumed by animals on the farm. So there's no commercial activity. Nothing is sold. And nothing moves across state lines. It all stays on Roscoe Filburn's farm in Ohio. Along come the bureaucrats saying, you're growing too much wheat. Too much wheat? This is my backyard. You're growing too much wheat. He tells them to take a hike. They bring an action against him. He wins. He wins in the uh, in the uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati, and then he loses in an infamous case before the Supreme Court of the United States. I'll show you the extreme to which the Commerce Clause has been blown out of proportion by the courts and by bureaucrats in the FDR uh, years, and subsequently by Republicans as well as Democrats in the years after the New Deal. Because Wicked Against Filburn stands for the proposition that even trivial behavior can be regulated by the Congress if when all the little tiny trivialities are added up, they might have an effect on interstate commerce. Think of it, there is nothing that could escape congressional regulation if it can regulate that which is trivial, if it can regulate that which is not commercial, if it can regulate that which does not cross over interstate lines, but which when added up, when put along some mythical, hypothetical, non-existent line, could affect interstate commerce. That's the lesson of Wickard against Filburn. This is the argument that the Supreme Court of the United States and the Congress of the United States, Republicans as well as Democrats, have used in order to justify perverse, perverse behavior by the Congress under the Commerce Clause. Oh, Madison somewhere is an unhappy person. Wherever his soul is, his body is still in Princeton. Because to Madison, the power that was given to the Congress was to keep commerce regular among merchants moving over interstate borders. How far we have come from that simple iteration, that Madisonian view.
Good morning, Liberty. It is Monday morning, July 8th, 2019. My name is Michael Bolden, broadcasting to you live from my home office and studio here in downtown Los Angeles for the 10th Amendment Center. We do broadcast live through our channels over at YouTube, Facebook, DLive, Twitch, and Periscope. We have archives at BitChute and, of course, a podcast version over at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and elsewhere. You find all of that stuff if you are not watching live or if you want to look later and look through previous episodes over at 10thamendmentcenter.com slash Liberty, where we have all of our archives posted for you to check out. Now, today we are talking about the Commerce Clause to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. This is by far one of the most twisted and abused clauses of the Constitution, and technically this is really going to be the first of a two-part series on this clause. I'm not going to do them back to back, but this first one, then I will follow up sometime in the near-ish future on part two. So today, first, we're going to cover just what the clause says. That should be pretty quick. You're going to read or, or hear exactly what the Commerce Clause says in the words of the Constitution itself. Then I'm going to talk about the two primary ways that politicians, the courts, their supporters of the monster state have actually twisted its meaning and empowered government to do far more than it was authorized to do. Then I'm going to share with you James Madison's view on the clause, more of an overview of the clause in total. And then finally, I'm going to give you a brief definition of what the word commerce actually meant to the founders. And in part two of this uh, coverage of the Commerce Clause, we're going to cover what they meant by the word regulate as well. Thank you so much for being here. Let's let's get into it. Uh, first of all, we have this uh, link. And again, all these links are in the show notes. We have this link uh, with an overview of the Commerce Clause on our website over at 10thamendmentcenter.com. I'm reloading the thing. I shouldn't do that. Slash Look, oh, well, there's a bunch of dashes. The link will be in the show notes. I should make this a short link at some point. Here is what the Commerce Clause says itself. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. The Cong Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. There we go. And here we, we put it on this link as well. The federal government claims that Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution gives it the power to regulate and control everything from health care to what kind of light bulbs we can buy and just about anything in between. They also tell us what kind of plants we can have in our backyard, uh, what kind of firearms we can possess, uh, what kind of uh, how big our toilet can be, all kinds of things under the power to supposedly regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. This article from Rob Nadelson, I think, is actually very interesting. We published it back in 2009. This is 10 years ago this month, claiming almost everything is, is commerce. And he puts it this way. According to promoters of the monster state, the constitutional phrases, and he was referring to commerce and necessary and proper, go further than allowing Congress to regulate trade among the states. They also allow Congress to control manufacturing, wages, agriculture, crime, mining, land use, firearm possession, and a range of other activities. Basically, as the, as the title of the article says, the federal government or people who support power in Washington, D.C., 
basically take the position that the Commerce Clause gives them the power to do anything and everything. And maybe they have to join in with another phrase like necessary and proper, but that's the view that they take. And Rob's article is actually really interesting explaining how they get there. And I think that helps us understand the original, the original meaning of it because it's so different from what the founders gave us. And he says, how can they justify this? Basically, they make two arguments. So there's two arguments on how they approach, how the bad guys approach the Commerce Clause. The first was spun during the New Deal by a University of Chicago law professor. Surprise, surprise. This professor, Rob writes, argued that during the founding era, the word commerce meant more than trade. Indeed, he contended the word commerce included all gainful economic activities. And again, if we're looking at the Commerce Clause and the text here, Congress has a power to regulate commerce. So we have to, first of all, understand what the founders and ratifiers, what the people of the several states understood commerce to mean. And then once you understand what commerce means, you can then look at what they meant by to regulate it. But if you have a view like this, that commerce means any gainful activity, then the, the natural inclination, the obvious one, is that they can regulate any gainful activity. So we have to correct the record first on what they meant by the word commerce. And Rob goes on, he said, this, the, this view, all gainful activities, has actually been expanded. So not rejecting it over the past however many decades, of course, leads to it going further. And he says an even broader version of this theory was published more recently by a Yale law professor. You guys could figure out who that is if you really geek out on these types of things. And this professor maintains that commerce means any human interaction. It's not just any gainful activity. It's not just trade. So we take the position that commerce means trade. And I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'll get into a little bit more detail on that shortly. But then in the New Deal, they're saying any gainful activity is commerce. And then they take that and say any human interaction. Basically, under the Commerce Clause, the federal government can basically regulate, however that may be applied, any human interaction. So what's the point of having a constitution if all they needed was this commerce clause? <laughs> That's my view. If all they needed was this commerce clause to say government is all powerful as long as you are talking with someone, working with someone, walking with someone, biking, driving, whatever it may be. If it's human interaction, all you have to do is look to the commerce clause and they can do whatever they want. They can control, ban, prohibit, make regular, whatever it may be that they're defining as regulate and whatever they decide is right politically. And that's how it plays out in Washington, D.C. There's no point of having a constitution if any of the phrases, and not just the Commerce Clause, we can apply this approach to general welfare, necessary and proper, or any other. But if the government can do whatever it wants under any particular clause or any group of clauses, there's no point in having a document that sets out a limitation on powers or a list of delegated powers. That The whole thing is pointless. And the founders understood that this type of approach uh, couldn't be used in any type of delegation of powers. Can you imagine running a, a business? Maybe you have a retail store or a chain of stores, whatever it may be. And you empower your manager to do certain things. And other things you're not going to. 
What's the point if the manager can look at any of the lines of their of their contract and say, well, I can do whatever I want. I can uh, run a bake sale for my family out in the parking lot. I mean, maybe that's not a good analogy, but of course the business isn't going to last or that person isn't going to last in the job for very long. But that's how we, the people, have basically looked to government. Maybe it's out of ignorance. Maybe it Maybe it's about ignorance about policy. Maybe it's about a misunderstanding of how bad things can be. And maybe it also is because uh, the people actually love this kind of uh, uh, government size and reach into every area of life. Rob goes on. He says, on investigation, however, the claim that commerce meant all gainful activities or all interactions turns out to be completely untrue. What a surprise. It flies in the face, he writes, of much of what we know about the founding era, including specific represent representations by leading founders that most regulation would be reserved to the states. Most famously, James Madison in Federalist 45 said that the powers delegated to the federal government would be few and defined. Those reserved to the states would be numerous and indefinite. That's the most famous one that, at least today, when we look at the founders talking about powers being reserved. But if the federal government could do anything under the power to regulate commerce because any human interaction or gainful activity would be under federal purview, why would Madison have said that the bulk of the power would be reserved to the states? And by the states, he meant the people of the several states. Now, it could be the state government decide to do something in that scenario, but the people of the state of each state may decide that they may want to do nothing about a particular issue. There'd be no point. Madison would be a blowhard. There'd be no point in him making that statement because it'd be uh, the federal government would have uh, had endless power. I guess that's a good way to put it. Rob goes on, and I think this is interesting. He says, but because it is sometimes necessary to prove the obvious, several other academics, primarily, and he's being kind here, the two leading academics that have actually researched this, the legal constitutional meaning of the word commerce at the time of the founding, as understood by the founders in both uh, regular lay and legal dictionaries, plus in writings, speeches, ratification debates, newspapers, and on and on. The primary people who have researched this, number one is Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law, and number two is Rob Nadelson, who is now at the Independence Institute, I believe, in Denver, Colorado, is a former law professor. They have examined literally thousands of appearances of the word commerce in the historical records from the founding era, thousands of them. They basically looked at every piece of history to understand how people understood this at the time. Because like any legal document, the meaning of, of a contract or a legal document or a compact, whatever it may be, today is the same as it meant at the time that it was agreed to, given legal force. And under the Constitution, that's when it was ratified. So you have to understand what it was, what it was meant to be at that time. So Rob goes on, he says, those records clearly show that commerce in the Constitution means trade and associated activities, trade and associated activities, trade, not the stuff that you do before the trade is made. So if I trade this pen with you for a few Satoshis of cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin or something, Bitcoin cash, whatever, if I trade this to you, 
they're saying that that is commerce. That's according to the founders, that is commerce. Now, making this, if I knew how to make this pen, which I do not, the making of the pen is not the commercial activity. Now, buying the materials from someone else is also trade. So hopefully that kind of makes a little bit of sense. Now, Rob says that, again, that's the first, the first version. The first version is that they've twisted it to mean all gainful activities or are pushing it towards all human interaction. That's an, uh, a heavy argument from the progressives, the supporters of the monster state, the conservatives that want Congress under whatever issue to have the power to control things that the founders said they never had the authority to control. Now, argument number two is one, according to Rob, actually prevails on the Supreme Court. Now, this was as of 2009. I don't honestly think it has changed much since then, the way they view the commerce power. I would like to see it shift, of course. And Rob says, don't let anyone tell you the court is conservative on such matters. They are not. This argument acknowledges that when the founders wrote commerce, they meant only trade and a few allied activities, such as navigation. Oh, wow. So that sounds positive. So the Supreme Court's view today of the word commerce under the Constitution, they take it to mean trade and a few associated activities, navigation, for example, through waterways. So does that mean that the Supreme Court is going to strike down all kinds of stuff under the Commerce Clause? Well, if you listen to my episode a couple of weeks ago, sometime in June, about the Supreme Court being part of the problem, I pointed out that over a period of about 60 years, the Supreme Court only took the opinion or held the opinion that only one act of Congress in the last 60 plus years had been unconstitutional under the commerce power. So uh, there's got to be something missing here. If they actually get the definition of the term correct, the way they're applying it is incorrect. Because what happens here, according to Rob, they go on to say that modern economic life, unlike during the founding era, that primitive time, this is the view of the court, is highly interdependent, and that's the term, interdependent economic life. So it is now, quote, necessary and proper. They're using another clause in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. It is now necessary and proper for Congress to regulate everything that substantially affects commerce. Let me go through that one more time in case it's not clear. The Supreme Court, at least, takes a pretty constitutional view of what the word commerce actually meant, at least up until about 10 years ago. I don't think it's changed much since there. They are correct in saying that commerce, the word itself, meant trade and very narrowly associated activities for trade. So uh, the Supreme Court says, if you're just looking at the definition, then the, what they can regulate is just that very narrow range of stuff. But the problem is, is now they've twisted something else and they say, well, commercial activity, everything is so interdependent. So therefore, the necessary and proper clause kicks in. And now anything that might affect commerce can be controlled. And if you've heard me talk about the famous case of 2005, Gonzalez versus Rage, this is the famous medical marijuana case here in California, where the Supreme Court held in a five to four opinion, 
written by Justice Scalia that growing six plants in your backyard, consuming them in your, in your own home, never buying or selling them, never having them cross state lines, somehow affected the interstate commerce of marijuana which supposedly doesn't exist because the federal government has banned it. So there is no legal, quote, legal interstate commerce of this plant. But having it intrastate, they're now saying, well, this is creating a potential for an interstate commerce in this plant. So therefore, we can use the necessary and proper clause to expand the commerce clause and therefore regulate, control, ban, prohibit, and punish people who actually even do this in their own home. Now, Clarence Thomas really warned people about this at that time, basically saying that if they can regulate and control something that's grown in someone's backyard that doesn't even enter commerce as something that affects commerce, then their power is limitless. And I believe he used the term limitless, and I absolutely agree with him. And in effect, even though the Supreme Court is generally defining the word commerce properly according to the Constitution, the way that they're applying it has the same result as these progressive New Deal law professors have pushed, that they can control all. This is actually beyond what the New Deal said basically beyond all gainful activities to almost all human interaction. And Clarence Thomas warned that if they could have that power, they, their power would be limitless. And of course, and I've mentioned this on the show a number of times, they use the arguments in that marijuana case, Gonzalez versus Rage, to support, this is what the Obama administration did, to support their case on Obamacare, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius. And Rob just makes a quick point on this that I think is interesting. This argument also ignores history. The Supreme Court is ignoring history on this. Economic interdependence is nothing new. The promoters of the Constitution themselves emphasized it. But they also assured the public that, interdependent or not, most activities could be regulated only by the states. And again, that goes back to Madison and Federalist 45, but he was far, far from alone. For example, here's how Madison put it. The Commerce Clause was intended as a negative and preventative provision against injustice among the states themselves, rather than as a power to be used for the positive purposes of the general government. This wasn't something, according to Madison, the so-called father of the Constitution, this wasn't something that was going to uh, explode the size of the government to be able to get involved in all kinds of activities. It was something that was to prevent injustice among the states. And my buddy Mike Meharry, he put it this way. Again, all these links are over in the show notes over at 10thamendmentcenter.com slash goodmorningliberty. If you're watching live, I tend to have those published anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour after the show is end. Ended. Uh, Mike puts it this way. The framers wanted the federal government to possess the power to prevent states from inhibiting trade through levying tariffs on neighbors. For instance, to have to have the power to stop Tennessee, poor Tennessee, sorry to be picking on you guys, from slapping a fee on bourbon imported from Kentucky. It was a power intended to protect free and robust trade. Although, I don't know, I think Tennesseans probably don't want Kentucky bourbon, do they? Don't they have their own? <laughs> it was a power intended to protect free and robust trade. The Commerce Clause also gave the federal government the authority to pursue a unified trade policy with other nations, as opposed to each state enforcing its own policy. 
And again, we go back to James Madison. I don't want to just fully rely on one person. Anyone, I, don't take this as all you have to do is find one founder to agree with you and whatever presupp uh, presupposition you have, whatever view you already have in your mind, you have confirmation bias and therefore, boom, done. But Madison is pretty prominent on this. He talked about it pretty regularly. So a lot of these articles were citing what, what he has to say. And here's a letter that he said he wrote to his friend, uh, J.C. Cabell in 1825, so later on in his life, not the very end, but pretty close. I'm not going to read through the entire thing. He says, it is very certain that this commerce clause, this power, grew out of the abuse of the power of the importing states in taxing the non-importing and was intended as a negative and preventative position against injustice among the states themselves. This is an expansion of what I read previously rather than as a power to be used for the po positive purposes of the general government, in which alone, however, the remedial power could be lodged. And it will be safer to leave the power with this key to it than to extend it to all the qualities and incidental means belonging to the power over foreign commerce. So he's saying the power over foreign commerce is far stronger than it was over intrastate or interstate. Again, this was a negative against injustice from state to state. They wanted to, some people would say, means make regular. We're going to get into that in another episode completely. And going a little bit further, here again, talking about Barnett and Nadelson again, he, taught, he cites two research projects, particularly by Barnett. He found that in everyday 18th century discourse, the word commerce approximated mercantile exchange. So not even person-to-person -person exchange. So in Barnett's study, and maybe he's updated it since these couple of papers, but uh, they're pretty extensive. There's links, again, in the this article itself. Just got to click here and here. If you're watching, you can see where those go. But not only... Is he talking about trade? It's not just bartering from person to person. It's not trade of something that you made in your backyard and you sold to your neighbor. That's not even something that the federal government could regulate as commerce or something that you're selling and taking across state lines. I don't, you know, there's a lot of ways that people might want to apply this, but he says mercantile exchange. So this is corporate or business activities. And his conclusions were based on literally thousands of uses, usages in contemporaneous writings. In a study of how the terms commerce and regulate commerce were used in Anglo-American law, Nadelson concluded, and this is Rob writing, I concluded that they included trade and specific closely related activities such as navigation, commercial paper, and marine insurance. My study was based on over 400 reported American and British court cases, as well as statutes, legal treatises, and other sources. So Barnett studied thousands of uses of the word commerce in day-to-day -day conversations, publications, speeches, books, pamphlets, columns, whatever it may be. And Nadelson studied the legal application, how they used it in court, because sometimes the definition of something in popular culture may be far different than it is in law. So this, again, very, very similar. We're talking about specific trade, uh, whether mercantile or a little bit broader. 
Rob goes on, in several other articles, I've collected specific representations by the Constitution's advocates that activities such as agriculture, manufacture, criminal law, and domestic relations would remain outside the federal pur purview, further demonstrating that the constitutional phrase commerce simply could not be as broad as some claim it is. There are many founders that specifically went out of their way to say that agriculture has nothing to do. This is the federal government will not be authorized to touch agriculture. So the idea that someone growing a plant in their backyard, which is agriculture, is somehow affecting interstate commerce, even though they're not even selling it and it's not even crossing state line, whether that's wheat, a tomato or a pot plant. What it does, it is a single step that creates the power for them to regulate basically anything and everything that might affect interstate commerce. And the, the way he sums it up is like this. Commerce was essentially the economic exchange of goods previously produced. Again, that gets back to my pen analogy. Commerce under the Constitution is not assembling something because it might be sold later. Commerce across state lines is not the selling of something between me and my neighbor here in Los Angeles. Commerce among the several states is the sale, the commercial exchange of something that had already been made that goes across that the, not that, I'm going to say this wrong. If I sell this to you and then you drive it along state across a state line and then use it, that is not interstate commerce. The commercial exchange at the time it happened was within the state. We're talking about commercial trade that goes across state borders. And this is economic exchange of goods previously produced. And he lists a number of things, and you can read this in more detail, on how some prominent founders, this example he's talking about from the documentary history of the ratification debates, and he has a most uh, one of the most recent volumes from Pennsylvania, how they're talking about commerce as being specifically different than trade and agriculture. They're saying, oh, commerce is this, and agriculture is something different. They make very specific uh, statements that they're different things. So when we're talking about commerce, we're only talking about that exchange, that business exchange. Looking over in the live chat, I hope you guys are finding this interesting. I've been kind of ignoring that because it's a pretty meaty subject. Bill Conley points out on Facebook, regulate to make regular, not impose ideology on companies. And I think I need to get into this a little bit more so people understand. Now, once we understand that commerce means economic exchange of goods previously produced, then we have to understand what do they mean by to regulate that commerce. And that's how you put it all together. Uh, also taking a look... Even the Tenth Amendment, uh, funky euphemism, I love that <laughs> screen name, is awesome. Even the Tenth Amendment say all power is not prohibited to the states, belong to the states. The Constitution prohibits states engaging directly in foreign trade. Interesting. Jeffersonian Press says the only reason for the government involvement is for that reason, ensure domestic tranquility. Ward Lawrence says regulating all human interactions could cancel out the Bill of Rights. Uh, I think it already does. So... You can look at it in two ways. Just because they aren't controlling everyone's free speech, like I'm communicating with you right now, doesn't mean that the Bill of Rights is totally in effect in law. It might be in effect 
because for them to try to shut it down would look really, really bad. And politically, it would be a bad choice. But they do have the foundational Supreme Court cases. They have the foundational laws on the books, the regulations. And I say laws, I put that in quote, because any law outside the Constitution is void as soon as it's passed or signed. But in practice, they have a lot of things on the books in all levels of government that actually allow them to do far more. So what we have right now is we're relying on them to not take it further. Patrick Henry put it, and I'm paraphrasing, he basically said, show me an age or a country, any time in history, where people relied on their rulers, the politicians, the government people, to be good men without a subsequent loss of liberty. So right now we're in that stage. Right now, it's easy to list all the things that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. But some people will come back at us and say, oh, okay, well, you have the, the freedom of speech to do this, and this is on the internet, and it's crossing state lines. So clearly, uh, you're complaining about nothing. <laughs> but right now, we are so far just relying on them not trying to push it another level. Because if they tried to, if there wasn't a lot of opposition, there would be a serious problem. They do have the foundation to take a lot bigger steps forward on this than they already have. And it's already a monster state, which is an understatement, pun intended. So I think uh, Patrick Henry was absolutely right. Taking a look a little bit more through, through, wow, some interesting funky euphemism again on Article 1, Section 10. I should do a full episode on that as well. I'm just sitting here reading at this point. I don't want to bore you guys. I do hope you found it interesting. I hope you had an awesome uh, Independence Day uh, holiday and a long weekend. I actually took a little extra time off, which was really nice. I missed a couple of shows last week. Thank you for patience in waiting for me to start the broadcast again. We're going to be back on our regular schedule here Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. Of course, if you support the show, smash the like button, subscribe, get bell notifications, get notifications if you have that option on whatever platform you're on. Some reviews at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and elsewhere for the podcast help a lot. All the platforms are very easily triggered. So whatever free action you take, it tells the algorithm, oh, wow, there's someone interested in this. We should probably show it to similar people or to other people, maybe their friends. So all those actions mean a great deal. Of course, we've had a lot of people sign up as members lately. I'm very, very grateful, whether it's two bucks a month or an annual program. That's over at uh, 10th Amendment Center .com slash members. Again, I hope you found this interesting, educational, fun to watch, all that good stuff. I will see you on Wednesday and Friday. I hope you have an awesome Monday. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll, I'll see you next time here at Good Morning Liberty.